You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Good to see you today. Always good to see new faces, meet new friends. Uh, Jace mentioned that our Discovery Lunch today, one of the largest that we have ever had to date. I think we have 20 family units uh, signed up for Discovery Lunch, 38 adults, 17 kids. Uh, yeah, praise the Lord. Um, and uh, if you maybe didn't get signed up ahead of time, that's fine. I think uh, you can, this is, this is real sacrifice. You can have some of my barbecue, okay? I'll share a bite or two anyway. Um, no, we would love for you to stick around, and we'll give you some instructions a little bit later on how we're going to flip this room. Uh, I also want to echo uh, something that Jace said earlier in that this has been an incredibly busy season for us. Uh, we shifted a couple of things around this year uh, that have been moved to some other spots in the calendar, and so it has meant that um, the first few weeks of 2023 have been really, really busy for our church family and for our staff particularly uh, with Ladies Retreat and uh, Chili Cook-Off Fundraiser Disciple Now Weekend. We had... RA and GA car races in here the last couple of evenings, and so we have utilized this building for sure uh, over the last uh, few weeks, and uh, we have determined and discovered that some of you have the spiritual gift of chair stacking and uh, those kinds of things, and uh, we do that a lot around here. So I want to say thank you, uh, first of all, to the the army of volunteers that it takes every week uh, to, to do church for us. Uh, whether you serve in child care or in the tech ministry or uh, there's just so many ways that people are serving every week. We have a, a, a rather lengthy list of volunteers uh, who many are here very early on Sunday mornings and many stay later and uh, we thank you for that. But we also, I also want to say thank you to our staff because uh, I was taught in seminary everything rises and falls on leadership and uh, our staff lead the way on many of those things, and uh, it's just a blessing to see uh, all that God is doing. Well, this is Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, my sermon has nothing to do with that, um, because I, as hard as I, I could look, I, I couldn't find football anywhere in the Bible, okay? So uh, if you know of guys who are preaching football-themed sermons today, well, they're, I guess, super creative or something. I don't know. I, we're going to stay in John chapter 3, but... Uh, I know some of you are looking around for one of our resident Eagle fans. Michael Nero was in the early service this morning. Somehow he slipped past security, had on an Eagle shirt, um, you know, that kind of thing. I, I did some research, and I discovered that the word chief or chiefs is found in the Bible 10 times more than the word eagle or eagles, okay? <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that, okay? That, that's, that's the extent of my commentary on, on the Super Bowl. Um, let's uh, look at John chapter 3 this morning. We've got something much more important to do this morning than any football game, to be sure. John chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 22 through 30. This is a sermon series that we started actually before uh, the first of the year called Person of Interest, a study of the gospel of John, and we'll be in the Gospel of John for much of 2023. We have already looked at uh, John's thesis statement, his purpose for writing the Gospel. We've looked at his prologue, and now we've made our way uh, nearly through chapter 3. And in this particular section of John's Gospel, where we've been for the last few weeks, 
We've seen Jesus' Jerusalem ministry begin with the clearing of the temple. And then Jesus has three major encounters with three very different types of people. We're kind of in the midst of that section of John's gospel. First, there's this encounter with Nicodemus, a representative of the Jewish religious establishment. That conversation, that encounter covers most of of, of chapter 3 here. And then we'll see later that he has an encounter with a Samaritan woman. That was a big deal, a big deal culturally uh, in so many respects. And then we'll see that there's an encounter with a Gentile official. And the main effect of this section of the Gospel of John is to reveal more of who Jesus is and to highlight the extent of what Jesus came to do. Uh, Now, last week, Jace did a great job on D-Now Sunday of covering chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, where we find what is probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. And he challenged us to consider uh, what is a familiar verse and can be easily overlooked with a fresh new perspective. And so I hope that you've taken the time, especially if you were here last week, or maybe you caught the message on on the podcast or on the app or whatever, Uh, but it, it was this thought. Is it because God loves me that Jesus died for me, or God loves me because Jesus died for me, or is it because God loves me, Jesus died for me? And if you've not taken the time over the last week or so to contemplate that, to look at that familiar verse through that lens, I hope that you will. I hope that you will. And so where we find ourselves this morning is, again, at verse number 22. We're going to read down through verse number 30. And so this is what transpires after this conversation with Nicodemus. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. As I often do, I want to begin by asking you a question this morning, and that's simply this. How do you most commonly think about life? What is life. And here's what I mean by that. Some people view life as a test. It's a test. And so you live your life and and you hope that somehow, some way, through your best efforts and, and, and your good behavior and all those things, that when it's all said and done, in the end, on test day, so to speak, you pass the test. Some people view life as a test. Some people view life as a game. It's a game to be won. Uh, There there are rules in this game, so to speak. Uh, Some uh, clearly understood, maybe some not so well. A competition. Some people view life as just a competition or a crisis. What is life and how do you most commonly think about it? Do you think life is a test? 
Some people again say life is just a game. The great philosopher David Lee Roth. (laughs) Some of you that are my age and older got that reference. Um, Notice I didn't say theologian, okay? David Lee Roth uh, said this, Remember, life is just a game and none of us gets out alive. A game can be seen as a type of test or a competition, I suppose. Some people believe that life is a competition and they have uh, their own rules and criteria for the winners and the losers in life's competition. It's determined by how far do you get on the corporate ladder, for example? How much money do you acquire? What does your portfolio look like? How much stuff, if you can get, you know, there's that old saying, you know, he who gets the most toys wins. And then there was a follow-up to that that said, he who gets the most toys still dies, okay? But some people view life much like a competition. Other people see life as a crisis. It's a series of urgent, pressing decisions, demanding deadlines that seem impossible to meet. And, and, And so how do you view life? I actually think the best perspective to have on life is to see it as a gift. It's a gift to be stewarded. Most of you have experienced this. You've maybe given a gift to someone, maybe one of your kids when they were younger, a Christmas gift or whatever, and you thought that they would find more joy or delight in this gift, but they really didn't. In fact, maybe they opened it up and they were more enamored with the box that it came in than the gift itself, right? They just kind of tossed it aside, especially when you give kids clothes at Christmas. Most kids anyway. It's like, toss that aside next. You know, it's that kind of thing. I'm concerned that that's maybe some, sometimes how people view life. They don't really see it as the gift that it truly is. It's a gift to be stewarded. Every day that we enjoy another sunrise, every breath that we breathe, it is a gift from God to be stewarded. And so if God is truly God and the world is his and we believe that that is true, then our lives are given to us by God. And more importantly, if we belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we have his assurance that life is a gift from him in which everything is ordered by his providence for our good and for his glory. So what difference does it make which one of these pictures of life we choose? Seeing life as a game keeps us from understanding that life is truly valuable and is to be taken seriously. On the other hand, seeing life as merely a test or a competition or even a crisis causes enormous stress as we're constantly concerned with whether or not we're passing the test or winning the competition or making the right decisions under pressure in the crisis. But life is a gift to be stewarded for God's glory. Now today we're looking at a time when John the Baptist's disciples, they thought that they were facing a great crisis. And John showed his wisdom and his humility when he responded to them with, with this understanding that everything in life is a gift. So let's see if we can't learn the same lesson. Let's see if we can't uh, see with the same eyes of faith that helped John the Baptist see the truth so clearly here in these few verses of John chapter 3. I want you to notice, first of all, in verses 22 through 24, there's a ministry overlap. This is kind of an interesting development in in the narrative uh, that John's giving us here in his gospel. And it begins uh, with this unusual ministry overlap. 
We don't have language quite like this in most of the other gospel accounts. And, and so after Jesus had spent some time in Jerusalem with his disciples, uh, cleansing the temple, speaking with Nicodemus, he then led his disciples out of the city into the Judean countryside, Scripture says, where Jesus was preaching and his disciples were baptizing people. At the same time, John the Baptist was baptizing further north in Aenon, near Salim. Aenon means springs, is what that word means. So John is at a place of springs uh, where water was readily available, near Salim, to the north, uh, near Galilee. And so what that means is that Jesus and John the Baptist are ministering about 40 to 50 miles apart from each other. And each of them are drawing significant crowds to hear their preaching. Now, in that day, that would have happened uh, much more organically than maybe it does today. There was like no Facebook post that was blasted out to say, hey, Jesus is going to be at this place tomorrow night at this time, you know, and, think. and so just think about the dynamics of how this is happening and how some people who had been following John's teaching and, and would be considered maybe one of his disciples even now, they're over here uh, with Jesus and they're, they're following Jesus as he's teaching and that kind of thing. So, and maybe you're like me, you've maybe wondered why John the Baptist was still preaching now that Jesus had come and been baptized and had begun his earthly ministry. John the Baptist knew that his ministry calling was given to him by God. And so he wasn't going to abandon his post or stop calling people to repentance until God himself removed him. It shows remarkable dedication to his calling, I believe. Now I want you to think of, of how difficult this might have been for John to be called to a ministry where your whole job is to be the forerunner for someone else. You're basically the guy who's announcing that someone else is coming. That's really your task. That, that, that's your job. Uh, and so when that person, in fact, arrives on the scene and begins his earthly ministry, actively teaching uh, in, in close proximity to where you yourself have been teaching, what, what exactly does that do? Uh, we, we see it in, in today's culture in a little different way. Some of you may not realize this, but uh, there are projections that would say, and I'm not sure by what year this would be, but in the not-too-distant future, there are projections that there will be a quarter of a million people in Grayson County, Texas. Can you imagine? I want to remind you that there's a development just up the street from our new property over on Colin McKinney Parkway that when it's built out, we'll have 6,000 homes in it. Homes. That's not people. So if you take a conservative estimate of three people per home, that's 18,000 people in one development. And so what we're seeing as church leaders and as a part of the, like the leadership team for our association is we, we need to be planting some churches because the truth is in the very near future, there will be enough people, and I would guess enough lost people, people who do not yet know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in Grayson County, Texas, to fill all of the Bible-preaching, Bible-believing churches 10 times over. We don't have space. Look, look at where we are now. I said a few weeks ago that there's, there's a real likelihood that when we move into our new facility, we will already be in three services. And I'm not saying that as a point of pride. It's just reality. It's just reality. And yet that, that thought is a problem for some pastors. The thought of other churches being planted in fairly close proximity to their church is a problem for them because they become territorial. Their focus is on something that it's really not supposed to be on, and that's like building their own kingdom. 
And so we, we see kind of that same thing kind of happening here with John's disciples. Their big concern here seems to be that some who would have been following John before are now following Jesus. And you see that in the language that they use here. And so I, I want you to notice this misguided concern. We're told here in the text, in verse 26, that some of the, the disciples got into a discussion with a certain Jewish man about purification rites. We don't know who this Jewish man was. We're not told what was said about purification or how it connected specifically to Jesus. But it was apparently in response to this conversation that these disciples came to John complaining about Jesus, in a sense. So they say it this way, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Like some of our crowds leaving. It appears that these disciples... Uh, are experiencing uh, enough bitterness and jealousy, perhaps, that they don't even say the name of Jesus. They simply refer to him as he who was with you across the Jordan and to whom you bore witness. Some commentators would say that last part, to whom you bore witness, might have been a, a mild rebuke of John as if to say, you're the one who drew attention to this man and now we're losing some of our crowd to him. Uh, their claim that all are going to him is it's, it's an obvious overstatement and it kind of reflects their panic. Maybe coming from their life is a crisis kind of mindset. You see, when we panic, we are not seeing with eyes of faith. We're not thinking clearly with biblical wisdom about our situation. God is never caught by surprise by changes in our lives. I think we sometimes forget that because change comes hard for us many times, depending on the nature of it. I mean, it can hit hard. It can hit very hard. But we know that our sovereign God ordains those things, either directly bringing them to us or allowing them to pass to us through his loving hands. He doesn't fall asleep at the wheel. God is never off of his game. He never falls asleep at the wheel and then wakes up wondering what's going on in the world or what's going on in our lives. He never lacks wisdom or love or power so we can trust his providential ordering of all things. He always knows what we need. He always loves us perfectly and ordains the best for us. He's never frustrated or unable to bring about what he desires for us. Now, I'm not suggesting that we'll always understand that or we'll just get it. I, there are still some things about my life, uh, relationship-related and family-related, things of that nature that I, I don't fully understand all that God's doing in that and, and why some things haven't um, maybe changed or, or shifted. I, I, don't, I don't get it. And it has a sanctifying effect in my life uh, to a large degree. And so then what was John's response to this, uh, to this concern? And so I want us to thoroughly notice a wise, loving humble response. So while his disciples may have seemed uh, panicked, maybe a little bitter, John the Baptist isn't. He's wise, he's loving, he's joyful, and he's humble. And I want you to notice the wisdom of what he says there in verse number 27. A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now we live in a culture uh, where we often hear uh, this idea that someone is a self-made man, self-made millionaire. This guy, he, he grew up in poverty. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps. And I understand the sentiment behind those things, you know, as a reference to hard work and perseverance and all those things that are very admirable. 
But the truth is, there's no such thing as a self-made man. There's no such thing. A person, he says here, John's initial response to his disciples is a, is a general proverb or affirm, uh, aphorism. A, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. It reflects the view that life is a gift. Everything we have is given to us by God. You say, but, but pastor, my, my portfolio, my whatever, my investment, my this, my, my possessions, I, I've acquired all those things. Who gave you the ability to acquire those things even? Who gave you the physical strength and the, the perseverance and the stamina, all that was, is required to do? Who even gave you that? Every breath we breathe is a gift from God. John the Baptist could easily have quoted Job here. You know, you guys are right. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can't just go out and grab life by the horns and make things happen for ourselves where a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, the American ideal of a self-made man is delusional. The world has never known and will never know a truly self-made man. The sooner we truly believe that everything we have has been given to us by God, the, the more loosely we will hold on to those things and, and the more grateful our hearts will be. Some people will claim that this view of life encourages irresponsibility. But that, that was clearly not the case for John the Baptist here. John didn't think that because his ministry had been given to him by God, he didn't have to be responsible and steward it well. It was quite the opposite. In fact, the, the, the fact that everything in his life was a gift from God not only made John the Baptist more humble and grateful, less greedy and bitter, but it also makes him more responsible since he knew that God had given him this ministry as a gift. It was to be stewarded ultimately not to create his own platform, no, but to glorify God. And again, much of what is the underbelly or the underneath a lot of social media and those kinds of things today is what? Is to build a personal platform. It is largely saying, and I'm not suggesting every post or everything that we, I, mean, I engage some on social media as well, but much of it is look at me. Look at me. It's much easier in our culture today because some of those things have become so common for people to, to become more and more self-absorbed and to create almost a fake life that they portray to people. We see this all the time. It, it has an effect on others that would say, I'm depressed because I look at people and I see their life and their life seems to be perfect. They've got it all together and I do not. And so you, you, you've kind of got this weird thing going on today. And even, even ministries and pastors can be better known than ever before. Content can be accessed in ways that it never could before. I mean, some of you can remember, I mean, it, when, when I was younger, my dad, he subscribed to a tape ministry for like Dr. J. Vernon McGee. You know, J. Vernon McGee, old Presbyterian pastor. I, I mean, some of you are shaking your heads because you know what I'm talking about. So we would get a cassette tape like every month of Dr. J. Vernon McGee's teaching. Now, you can access all of someone's content by pushing a couple of buttons on your phone. And so people naturally build these big platforms, nationwide, even worldwide platforms, and what we're discovering more and more in our culture today is the depth of their character can't sustain the breadth of that, uh, that, that impact. It just isn't there. 
There's no solid foundation. And so then that's why we're seeing more and more stories of these toxic leadership stories and moral failures and all of these sorts of things. It's because it's all about building my platform or my brand or, or whatever you want to call it. And I'm not suggesting it's, it's wrong to use uh, technology and some of the things that are afforded to us today uh, to, to proclaim the gospel. But it's something we have to be very careful about. So in this particular case, John, he's given them some wisdom here, these disciples. He's like, look, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. It is a gift to be stewarded. And then he says this, he makes it clear. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John never had an inflated view of his own significance. He never imagined for himself a higher role or a more important place in God's kingdom. His disciples may have thought that John's great popularity, at some points, they probably thought he was perhaps the Messiah, the Christ. He brought them back to reality by reminding them what he had already taught them. John was content to remain in the position that God had assigned and his disciples needed to understand that. There's great wisdom in that. Then I want you to notice how this response was loving. He says, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Interesting. You see, another accusation that is often brought against the strong view of God's providence and life being a gift from God that John expresses here is this kind of fatalism. But John's wise understanding of providence is not a cold fatalism. It, it's warm with love for the Lord and for his goodwill in John's life, the work that he's doing there. And he explains this position to his disciples using the analogy of a wedding. John sees himself as the friend of the bridegroom, or what we might call today the best man. In a Galilean wedding, such as the wedding at Cana that we've already looked at here in John's gospel, the groom and his family arrange the wedding, prepare the wedding feast. In Judea, where John grew up, the friend of the bridegroom, or the best man, uh, was the one who arranged the wedding. It had been a long-standing tradition in the ancient Near East that the best man was absolutely forbidden from marrying the bride, no matter what. His job was clear. He was to serve the bridegroom and his bride by arranging their union. His joy was in their union, their wedding. John was sent by God the Father to prepare for the coming of Jesus. Hear this if you don't hear anything else today. To arrange for the union of Jesus the Messiah, the bridegroom with his bride, his people. That was his task. And it's fundamentally the same task that we've been given. Our job is to introduce people to Jesus Christ. That's as simple as you can make it. We do that in different ways, using different methodologies, in different types of conversations, in different sorts of contexts. But ultimately, it's all about introducing people to Jesus Christ. It's kind of like this. Let me introduce you to someone who has changed my life, radically changed my life, transformed my life. It's one of the reasons that we say here at First Baptist Church, we are a transformational church. 
And our mission, our purpose, is to lead people on a life-transforming journey to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our task. That's our job. And so this shows us that John saw his position here in warm, affectionate, joyful terms. While some of his disciples were less mature in their understanding, and they thought, we're losing some of our crowd. What's happening? That church over there seems to be growing while ours is not. What in the world is happening? The fact that large crowds of people were now flocking out to the Judean wilderness to hear and to see Jesus doesn't make John upset in the least. On the contrary, the popularity of Jesus is the completion of John's joy. It seems that the bride is welcoming her bridegroom. And this is what John has been laboring for. It's why God sent him into the wilderness in the first place. People are coming to know Jesus. And then I want you to notice the humility with which he responds. You notice there in verse 30, he says, He must increase, I must decrease. That final statement in this section that we're looking at this morning is, is probably the most famous, poignant, fitting, humble conclusion to his teaching of his disciples here. He must increase, I must decrease. And understand this, the way that it's expressed in the original language of the Greek indicates a divine necessity. In other words, John is not just saying that it's fitting and proper that Jesus would increase in popularity while John decreases in popularity. He is actually saying that God has ordained it, and thus it must be so that Jesus will now increase and John will decrease. Um, some of you may not be aware of this about, uh, about me. Uh, years ago, I was, uh, my undergrad degree, I was a communications major, and so um, some of my grade uh, was, uh, my final grade for my senior project, in fact, was to basically MC. Uh, and narrate a huge patriotic program. Uh, I was not the featured speaker. Okay? I, I kind of set the stage, so to speak. Uh, I did some introductory stuff. But once I was done with my part of introducing a guy that was a, a fairly well-known veteran of, of the United States Marine Corps, he was going to be the keynote speaker at this particular event. Once my part was done, what do you suppose I did? Did I step over to the side and like do a little jig and everything while he was speaking because I, I needed people to... That would have been completely inappropriate, right? Like my professor would have said, get off the stage. Like, No, I knew that once my task was done... I was supposed to, to step off. I, I was supposed to be off the stage. I didn't need to be seen really or heard anymore. Because my job was to really set things up and to introduce the guy who was to be the keynote speaker. And I think that's kind of what John is seeing here. And I think many times in our conversations with people, that's our task. My job is to introduce you, friend, to the person who has changed my life, and his name is Jesus. And there may come a point in that friendship or that relationship where God would say, now I need you to kind of step aside. I've got some other people who are going to come alongside this person, and they're going to help them grow in that relationship with Jesus. It's amazing that in God's sovereignty, he chooses to use broken, sinful, messed up people like you and me to advance his kingdom. 
I love the way one guy said it. It's like just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. <laughs> the bread of life. That's what it is. We're all somewhere on this journey of becoming more like Jesus. Some days, I don't look much like Jesus. <laughs> Other days, do a little better, right? I'm still very much a work in progress. That's why we need to, to do this Christian life in community with one another. It's so important that we come alongside one another and grow in Christ's likeness. This statement, he must increase, I must decrease, it's a pretty concise statement from John. It has such rich implications for us as believers. How can I grow as a Christian in love for God and faithfulness to his word? Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He must be the Lord and the center of my life. I must take my rightful place at his feet in worship. My will must be submitted to his will. My affections must be conformed to his affections. My priorities must be changed into his priorities. My values must become his values. My thoughts about what is true and right and just and all those things must be reprogrammed, replaced by what Jesus thinks is true and right. And in every area of my life, he must increase, I must decrease. And that's why we often say it this way. We're told in Scripture to be being filled with the Spirit. You can only be filled with the Spirit to the degree that you are emptied of yourself. That's why the call to discipleship is one of self-denial. It's not one of self-promotion. <laughs> it's not. I, think about it. In our humanness, many times, if we know a well-known person, we typically want people to know that, right? Like, like, if I was personal friends with Luka Doncic, right? Like he's one of my favorite basketball players. I probably would let y'all know, hey, I was hanging out with Luka last week, right? <laughs> okay? I mean, I wouldn't be ashamed of that. <laughs> but see, the, the way that it works in our relationship with Jesus is we're not to be ashamed of that, but we want to become and look more like Jesus. So here's another thing that you may not know about me. When I was um, early in ministry, I uh, was on staff at a, at a Christian school over in Louisville, and I was a, a speech and drama teacher. So every year, uh, one of the final grades for my speech and drama students was to do this big Christmas production. And like any class, I had some students that were especially gifted as actors and actresses. They were definitely the onstage people. They were playing key roles, you know, support role, all those sorts of things. Had other students who had no desire for that, no desire to be in the spotlight. They wanted to be on the tech crew. They wanted to help run lights. They wanted to do, you know, all the other things that are necessary to make a production like that go. Now, this was back in the day before all these uh, programmable lights and everything, and certainly before those kinds of things were affordable. And so we would rent, every time we did one of these productions, we would rent one of these big spotlights. You've seen them. There's like a handle back here, and you can focus them down a little bit, but like you literally, you've got to man this thing. Like you've got to like move it like this and everything. And I can, every year, I would have one person who was assigned to the spotlight, the house spotlight. And I would tell them every time, your job, you've got one job. You've got one job. Your job is to keep the spotlight on that person. Are on that spot, right? That's your job. Nothing else matters. 
You don't have responsibility for curtains. You don't have responsibility for, for, for sound. You don't have, your one job is to keep the spotlight on that one person. That's fundamentally what we're seeing here. As followers of Jesus Christ, our job is to keep the spotlight not on ourselves, but on Jesus. He's the star of the show. He's the reason that we have life. It's not because of our own goodness, our own best efforts. It's because of Jesus. So everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we commit our time and energy and resources to is all about keeping the spotlight on Jesus. And and if you've ever been the person up on the platform and you've had one of those big spotlights shining in your face, you can't even see the person who's manning the spotlight. They're in the shadows. You might see a dark figure up there, but you can't see them. (laughs) And that's fundamentally what John is saying here. My task, my calling all along is to keep the spotlight on Jesus. That's what I want to be about. That's why as a church family, every ministry, everything that we do, it's not just for activity's sake. It's because we want to keep shining the light on Jesus. Because if people don't see Jesus, and they don't see Jesus in us, then it's all just a bunch of activity. He must increase. I must decrease. You see, Paul sketches out an outline for this process in the book of Philippians as he writes to the church at Philippi there. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2 there, that same book, verses 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Not talking about a works-based salvation. He's saying, hey, let it work itself in you. This is sanctification. It's going to become more and more evident and obvious that you are a follower of Jesus because you're committed to knowing him better every day and spending time with him in the word and spending time communicating with him in prayer. All these things. So more and more, you're going to look like Jesus. I had an opportunity not long ago to, uh, to talk to someone that I hadn't talked to in a very long time. And as I was talking to them, and here's the thing, like I've known this person and their family for quite some time. I was baffled by how this person's mannerisms and everything are so much like one of their parents. I was like, the way you just looked at me was so much like your mom. The way that you said that, just like your mom. You see, the more that we're with Jesus, the more that we come to know him, the more that we see his fruit born out of our lives, the more we sound like Jesus, talk like Jesus, look all those things. That's our goal, for people to just see Jesus in us and through us, to keep the spotlight on Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. And so my prayer for each of us, if you're here today and your testimony is one of faith in Jesus Christ, that more and more the fruit of the Spirit will be born in your life. Where maybe before... There was a a, a tendency toward impatience and anger, maybe, and bitterness. Now that's seen less and less because you're bearing the fruit of love and joy and patience and peace and all those things. That's the fruit of the Spirit. He must increase. I must decrease. 
So the next time you find yourself getting irate over something, and you're all full of yourself, and you're bearing the fruits of, of pride and the flesh and all those things, maybe stop and go, wait, I must decrease. He must increase. I want to keep the spotlight on Jesus. So if we could bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. As we've looked at John the Baptist's perspective on ministry here, his, even his pattern of ministry, his, his pleasure, his joy in ministry and pointing others to Jesus, his whole purpose. Reminds me of a quote from an old Moravian pastor, Ludwig von Zinzendorf said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. We could adjust that slightly, I suppose, and say, live the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Invest every day of your life, every day of your life, Steward it as a gift from God, the gift from God that it is. Steward it, ultimately for his glory and living out the gospel. Not to make a name for yourself, not to say, look at me, but look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. It may be that you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you know of Jesus, you know about him, but you can't truthfully say that you know him as your Savior and your Lord. I want to invite you to take that step of faith today. And if your testimony is one of faith in Christ, I want us to be consumed, passionate, about making much of Jesus and declaring to the world in which we live, oh, what a Savior. In just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity together to sing those words, and I hope that you will sing them with a renewed passion for making much of Jesus. He must increase. We must decrease. Heavenly Father, we thank you Thank you for every day, every day that is given to us as a gift. Help us, Lord, to steward the moments, the moments with our children, the moments with our co-workers, the moments with our fellow church family, with our community, everything would ultimately be about pointing others to Jesus, to keeping the spotlight on Jesus, the one who must increase as we decrease. More of you, less of me. May that be our prayer today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.